Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. As usual, we have a few notes for you at the beginning of the show here. It looks like September in 2015 is turning into International Closure Bridge Month. Closure Bridge is going kind of crazy in September, and that's a good thing. There are Closure Bridge events in Minneapolis, September 11th through 12th. Uh, there's one in Kentucky, September 18th and 19th. Uh, there's one in Auckland, New Zealand, this is the same dates, the 18th and 19th. There's one in Malmo, Sweden. Again, the 18th and 19th, and there's one in Durham at the Cognitech headquarters. That's in October, October 2nd and 3rd. Um, all of those you can find on the Closure Bridge website at closurebridge.org. If you would like to attend or to volunteer, we're always, I should say, they. Uh, as I've said before, Closure Bridge is not an official Cognitech um, activity. We certainly um, support it, but uh, it's uh, it's run by the wonderful Closure Bridge people, not by Cognitech. So credit where credit is due there. So if you would like to attend or volunteer, uh, please go and uh, check out the closurebridge.org website. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not also mention here at the beginning of the show the Closure Cons, which is coming up. It's going to be November 16th, 17th, and 18th in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, it's going to be awesome. It always is. I've been to every single one, and I definitely would not miss it. That would be a big bummer for me if I weren't able to go. Uh, you should go, too. Um, it's it's great. I mean, and you can, can kind of tell that at least some of people think so, too, because the early bird tickets sold out in, I don't even know, like a really short amount of time. Uh, the regular price tickets are now available, though. Um, I also want to make sure to mention that the in addition to the conference itself, there's also some training available. Um, and there's also going to be the first ever Datomic conference, the training, which is closure training, the closure of the language training, that's separate from the Datomic conf. Those are both, both of those events are November 14th and 15th, so right before the conference, which um, I believe I may have mentioned is in Philadelphia. So um, you should check all of those things out. Obviously, you can't go to both the closure training and the Datomic Conf, but uh, if you can make it to either one of those, I think those would be pretty cool. And maybe, just maybe, I will actually be at the uh, training. That still remains to be seen, but uh, there's a chance I will be one of the instructors. So come on down and, uh, <laughs> you know, if you just can't get enough of sound in my voice, and boy, would my wife laugh at you if you ever told her that then uh, you you know you can get even more there. But regardless, um, do come to the, the conference. I will definitely be there. Um, and if you are there, you should come find me and say hi. That'd be great. All right. Um, I think that's all I have to mention today. I'm sure there will be more to say about the conferences, the Datomic Conf and Closure Conj uh, at the beginning of future episodes. But now we will go on to episode 86 of the Cognicast. Today is Friday, August 7th, 2015, and this is the Cognicast. And today I'm welcome, I'm pleased to welcome, I'm not welcome to please, I, that's a, I guess that's open for debate, but I'm pleased to welcome at any rate uh, two uh, returning guests to the Cognicast. I'm talking about Alex Miller and Ben Van Griff. Welcome to the show, guys. Good to be here. Good. Hello? Yes, we're here. Can you hear us? Oh, you said hello. I get it now. I'm really slow. 
Um, <laughs> wow, it's going to be one of those interviews. Uh, so that really probably means that we should get to the part where you talk and I shut up given what's coming out of my mouth right now. You guys have listened and been on the show. Uh, I'm not sure if you've listened lately. Ben, your last episode was a while ago. We sure. have a, a tradition that has changed since then, which is on the way in, we, we ask one of our guests to share some experience that they've had, some artistic experience, whether that's a painting that they've seen or a interpretive dance that I know you're so fond of, Alex, or whatever. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with interpretive dance. So I, we didn't think about this beforehand because, as listeners might have picked up on the fact, my brain is about half out of my head today. Um, so which one of you would like to step up and, and lay an experience, an artistic experience on us? Anyone? I'll go oh. ahead. Um, when I was uh, when I was a kid, I've given this question some thought, and it's really hard to pinpoint like one thing that was the first thing. But that's what I was shooting for. Uh, a friend of the family, his name was Danny Wisher, handed me a uh, black Maxwell cassette tape that had uh, the William, William Tell overture on it, was which was the first piece of classical music that I've ever listened to. That changed the way I looked at music, and continues to. Cool. And how would you say it changed? I mean, obviously, it's a very, uh, it's a piece that has a lot of um, you know, kind of cultural context and emotional content. But what what about it was that that affected you? Well, uh, my dad was a musician, so I'd heard a lot of music, but I'd never heard anything so uh, affecting or deliberate. The classical music, the composition of classical music, is very, uh, it is very, it is very intentional. Uh, it's deliberate, everything's in its right place, and yet it all flows together to create this emotional response to tell a story. To, there are pictures that kind of show up in your head when you listen to to a piece like that. Uh, I didn't really know that was possible without words to actively tell the story. And I didn't – I wasn't used to music being that intentional. So you can have beauty from intention was my takeaway, and that's one that stuck with me. That's awesome. Deep stuff for a, what did you say you were two, two year old? That's pretty good. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, so anyway, that that is awesome. Uh, but I want to to have you guys on the show today to talk about your book. Uh, the two of you, you know, we've all worked together. Uh, ben is no longer at Cognitech, but Alex is, and but we've all worked together over the last minute of years. And um, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, you've both occupied a position of. You know, you've kind of been immersed in closure for a while, and, and you've written a closure book, and it is what is it? It's due out soon. I actually don't even know. Well, we are actually um, this this weekend. So within the next two days, uh, we're it's leaving our hands uh, for good, and we'll go off towards production. So uh, we're in our very final, final, final review right now, this very minute. Okay, cool. <laughs> so it'll probably be out in like end of August, early September. All right, but. great, great. So, 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 so I do want to come back to that, but so, but uh, <laughs> we should probably start by. So I said you've written a book. Let's uh, let's have you guys lay on us. Maybe I'll throw it to Ben. What is this book? I'm assuming it has a title, but beyond that, what's it about? Uh, well, the the title is uh, Closure Applied uh, from Practice to Practitioner. Uh, it is a 201 level book for those who are familiar with closure syntax and have played around a little bit, uh, written some light stuff, and who want to go forward through the journeyman stage into building um, 
real world like applications. There's something bigger than a bread box applications. Yeah, and so I think that's a, an interesting space. Um, I have said before on the show that when it comes to any kind of documentation, teaching material, whatever you want to classify that includes presentations, whatever, that there's a there's oftentimes a you know plenty of beginner stuff, but not as much intermediate stuff. So I think it's very very cool that you um, have decided to address that space. Alex, Ben, Ben, I'll start with Alex. Is this is this your first book? It is, uh, yeah, the first book I've had any significant involvement in. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I have written uh, some chapters and a few other books, and I've contributed in a few other places. But uh, yeah, this is the first real significant effort. Cool. And Ben, what about you? Is this your first book? Uh, almost exactly the same thing is true. I've uh, contributed in places and written some articles, but this is the first full-length anything that I've been a part of. Uh, so <laughs> I have heard from other authors. I've never written a book myself, um, but I have certainly many friends, including you guys who have. Alex, uh, you kind of laughed when you said the first significant effort. I take it your experience then has been a lot like what other people have reported, which is it's a very big job, um, especially kind of around the phase where you're at right now, where there's like a death by a thousand paper cuts phase at the, at the end where you're like, I wrote the book. Why do I have to write the book again? Is that is that an accurate portrayal? Uh, well, I'd say the this end phase is is uh, quite pleasant compared to the uh, the middle phase. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to make small changes. It's the uh, trying to work through the for me the hardest part is figuring out what you want to say. So um, the actual writing itself is is uh, slow for me. I'm a slow writer, but um, uh, but it's not that part is not as painful as uh, just trying to put together, you know, uh, the, a, a set of thoughts that make sense uh, longer than a blog post. <laughs> I'm very familiar with that length, but it turned, you know, you, you start writing like a book chapter ends up being, you know, the equivalent of, I don't know, four or five, uh, you know, chunky blog posts in length, and then you're going to write, you know, 10 of those in a row. <laughs> so uh, figuring out how to structure that stuff, I think, you know, I, I think, Ben and I rewrote some of the chapters completely from scratch as many as four or five times. Um, so then heavily refactored a few of the early ones, even beyond that. So uh, that was definitely the most painful part. <laughs> so this editing at the end is, is fun in comparison. Okay. Well, that's good. I guess that you're, that you're through the hard part. Um, so what is the, and maybe I'll switch over to you, Ben, what, what would you say is the, the, the story, because I think if I understood what you're saying correctly, Alex, it's there was a bit where you kind of had to make it make sense as a whole. And, and I assume, um, I, I haven't read it, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to at some point, but I uh, have not yet read it. I assume that there is a sort of, in some sense, a story that, that hangs it all together. I mean, it, it might be a, a technical in nature, but would you say, Ben, that you guys managed to find a a sort of narrative or a theme or something that made it all hang together? And if so, what was it? Yeah, uh, and this was the reason that we've written the book two and a half times, I think, and have another third of a book uh, scattered around uh, various directories and various states of disrepair that won't be included. Uh, finding the first, uh, well, first seven chapters of, of the book describe, um, or I should say lead the reader through a process 
where you build up your domain and your domain operations, then you uh, choose how to collect your information and then how to process sequentially. And um, all along the way, you see uh, little, um, I, I will call them, their intention is for them to be best practices, uh, idiomatic practices to, to some degree, um, good ideas on how to do things. You start with the uh, start with the entities, collections, sequential processing, then move to like state and identity, uh, then uh, concurrency and parallelism, then components, then composing the entire application with uh, configuration. We don't build a single application while we're writing the book. It's just these are the steps you follow when you're going from here's this piece of information that I want to represent and build an application around or these pieces of information to the actual end construction uh, of an application that's composed of components that have uh, parts that have been built in sort of a methodical way. So there's an element of that I, I feel that is um, broadly, generally applicable, but this is a closure book, right? I mean, so I, I, did you find that you had to walk a line or or make choices about here's how you do this enclosure and sort of generally here's how you do this. Um, and I guess a related question, and you guys can split this up however you want, is um, how interesting or useful do you think it would be for a non-closurist to read this book? Would they walk away with some principles they could apply to their own language? I, I guess really what I'm talking about is the, is the, the blend of architecture, for lack of a better word, and... Um, and uh, the language-oriented stuff. I mean, to the extent that those are, you know, different things. How did you manage that? I, I think. I mean, I think we really were writing to the closurist, so um, that's where you're going to find the most. Uh, that that's the audience that will find the most answers. Um, there were definitely some sections. I know Ben wrote some lengthy sections that were really about architecture, um, and most of that ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, we ended up deciding that we really wanted to focus on the uh, on that that actually that was it was really it was great material <laughs> we decided that was another book <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that uh, may, maybe maybe a future book but uh, uh, that we would uh, leave it out in here and so I mean pragmatic has a, a particular writing style that they expect you to follow uh, more so than some of the other publishers that's really concerned with sort of taking a journey with the reader through, you know, through something, through a process or something like that. And so our editor was uh, pretty r relentless in asking um, several hundred times a week, you know, why does the user care about, why does the reader care about this? Why does the reader, what problem are they solving? Why has this changed their life? Why do they, you know, what does it teach them? And so uh, that was, uh, I would say for me, that was a, uh, uh, sort of at times a tough transition to writing in that style uh, and sort of less, uh, you know, uh, systematically or just, uh, you know, laying out things very thoroughly, which is probably what I would do by breaking things down and laying them out, which is what I would do by default. And so one of the other one of the other questions ahead. that she asked constantly was, how does this apply to closure? And that really shaped our approach. Yeah. Like it is squarely for the closure audience. Uh, there are things that others could take away, um, but a lot of the material is geared around the specifics, um, 
sort of the mood and flow of a closure application, which you know is different than a Ruby application or a C application. Could you give me an yeah. example of a place where you had to make a choice like that? Well, I, mean, I think that like if you even go start from the first chapter, which is really about domain modeling. And I've had an, a, a number of people tell me who've read the book have told me that this was that that chapter in particular was uh, really helpful to them in understanding how to structure their data for their application. Um, and so it, you know, when you look at some, if you were, for example, you know, modeling your domain in Java, I think you have an entirely different set of um, ideas and practices versus modeling it in closure and the way that you handle relationships and um, data validation and things like that. There's just, uh, the concerns are different. Um, just because closure is, you know, focused on representing things as data uh, and leaving that sort of bare for you to work with, um, rather than trying to encapsulate it inside something else and then uh, combine it with operations. So those two things tend to be more separate, you know, data and behavior in closure than they are in something like a NOAA language. So. The right that makes sense. So, but um, bringing was that a place where you had said something else, and your editor asked you that question? You know, how does this apply to closure? How is why does the reader care about this? Was that was there part of that process that transformed that particular part of the book? Uh, definitely. <laughs> so, I mean that that's uh, chapter one was probably the one that was rewritten more than anything else, and so. Uh, that question was asked uh, many, many times, and I, I can't really relate to you exactly a, a specific question, a specific thing around that. Most of it happened over a year ago at this point. Sure, there was a there was a point at which we had organized the first section of the book, the first uh, first three chapters, a particular way, and in the interest of cutting out the more uh, broadly applicable material and focusing down on closure, we ended up restructuring the first three chapters into completely different worlds. And Alex referred to this at one point as boiling the ocean. <laughs> and that, I feel like it, it that's a, inaccurate. It was an effort. It was a hard decision at the time because we really felt like we had baked the first three chapters to some degree and we're trying to get them published you know trying to move on to other things and so it was a matter of uh the painful sort of stepping back and saying we're not done we have to go back and and sort of really heavily do a system refactor <laughs> on this first chunk of the book uh, that was it was painful it's funny you say refactor that's exactly the word i had in my mind again not having written a book but i've written my fair share of software uh <laughs> did it feel like uh did that feel like I guess I guess what I'm asking is to compare the process of writing uh, writing the book to writing a, a significant piece of software. Like, was it the case that you know you had that same? I think we could all relate to. There's a bit where you're trying to ship, and uh, you know you have to do a whole bunch of stuff that you were like, oh man, I wish we could just move on to write features or whatever. Was it exactly like that, or was it different somehow? Help me as a non-author to understand. When writing in the way that we wrote for the publisher we wrote for, it was a very much like a consulting gig. We uh, we were the developers. We were writing for a client who would then push the product out to uh, to their users uh, or readers in this case. Uh, and at that point uh, in this particular refactor, the uh, the client didn't necessarily like um, 
this section of the application. So there was no way to get from the place where we were to the place where they wanted us to be as far as the uh, as far as the narrative went, the you know the the workflow of the uh, of the book. So yeah, very much like a refactor and very much like working with the client who yeah. has like strong advocacy for their customers. That makes sense. Thanks. That helps a lot. So yeah, and and to their to their credit, you know, they have they have an idea of I mean, I'd say that the pragmatic uh, team has, you know, a more um, sort of specific idea of what the kind of thing they're trying to produce than uh, most other tech publishers. And they really have a vision there, and they're protective of it. So, um, and really, I think that you know the questions they're asking are ones that made the book better. So, um, even when it was frustrating, I tried to uh, keep that in mind <laughs> that the yeah, there they, was a they greater were super goal. Helpful. Yeah, they were they were super helpful. And while this may have been our first radio, it wasn't theirs. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, would you do it again? Uh, I would, although. Uh, I think I think my wife might uh, force and or murder me. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's sometime in the near future, <laughs> Ben. Oh, I would. Yeah. Cool. I think it was a overall. It was a worthwhile experience. Not only uh, just like my own personal takeaways were very positive, uh, but I think the thing that we produced uh, will help a lot of people to understand things that aren't necessarily obvious about closure. Yeah, so I want to come back to that. So, I mean, you made a great analogy. I think you know it was like writing a piece of software for a um, for a, a, a product owner, but um, that means that the users are the reader, right? Like the readers are the are the users in that analogy. And so, they it sounds like you were being asked the question: How does this help the reader? Um, you know, why does this person, this notional person, care about what you're saying? So you probably developed uh, or had to develop a fairly strong notion of what um, – like who you were addressing. And I, I know you mentioned that a little bit at the beginning. You know, this is for uh, people that are kind of, uh, you know, moving up the ladder. They've they've decided – I guess maybe I'll let you put it. How, how would you describe your – the reader or the, the reader as you imagine them? Uh, well, I, I think um, I, I do a, f a fair number of training gigs for uh, Cognitact. And so I am all the time uh, interacting with people that are uh, new or relatively new to closure. And, you know, like uh, uh, the, the book is not intended for someone who is um, this, this is their for this to be their first introduction to closure. Right. Uh, it's assuming that uh, like like Ben said, that they've kicked the tires a little bit. Maybe they've gone and read one of the, you know, Closure for the Brave and True or uh, or something, some online material, or they've, you know, picked up uh, Karen's Living Closure or the other, you know, the other, all the other intro books that are out there that really talk about syntax and what the features of language are and, you know, how to, how to use it in, in the small. And so we're kind of assuming that, uh, that, uh, that the person, the reader has done that to some degree and that they're really at this point, um, trying to, um, uh, to solve a real problem. You know, <laughs> they have like, I want to go actually build something that solves some real problem that I have either for my job or for some hobby side project. And what are the questions that you're going to, 
uh, that they're going to have. Like, where do I start? You know, so like we tackle things like um, that. There are things that I see people ask all the time. So like we have a section of the book about um, how you organize your namespaces, which is a question I see all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or or uh, um, things like how do I pick the right collection to use in this particular circumstance? Or um, why would I want to use sequences versus transducers? Like which what does which one of those solves my problem? Um, or how do I even think about my problem? Those sorts of things. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I, I uh, from, just from watching the closure community, I see a lot of those kind of questions that repeat, and uh, we really tried to answer as many of those as we could in here, uh, because those are the answers, the questions that I see people asking. Yeah, that's I, that's so that's like I say, I think that's great. I think uh, we could definitely use more of that. It's interesting though. Um, we, and we've had, uh, well, I guess all of these authors on at one time or another. Uh, I'm thinking of other books that m- are maybe in sort of the same niche, and I wonder if you would care to comment on how you see them complementing your book or or how readers of those books might want to look at yours. Uh, the, the books I'm thinking of are Joy of Closure um, and then also the uh, Closure Cookbook, only because you mentioned, you know, here's how you do something, and I think that's very much in the realm of what the cookbook is oriented at. Uh, how do you see, you know, like I said, the, 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 the book that you've written being complementary to or overlapping with, or how, how is it in re- relate to those books in particular? I think so. Um, I, so I know the, the authors of most of the closure books and, and uh, consider them all friends and, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd say in general, they're all smaller, smarter than, than I am. So, <laughs> and I think Joy of Closure is a great example of that. It's a, a fantastic book, and uh, uh, Chowser and and Fogus are uh, f- far more knowledgeable about <laughs> m- most things than I am. So um, they really take closure to a lot of. Um, they bring in a lot of history and background and context that um, I, I will not match and do a lot of interesting things in Joy of Closure. And I think Joy of Closure um, does actually cover some overlap. Like I think there are certain sort of um, how-to kinds of things that that overlap a little bit and that they um, probably do a more exhaustive job of uh, and in particular pushing things further. So in some ways I think Joy of... uh, I think just they're in a similar kind of a space, but... um, they're really, it's, um, it, it covers a, a broader set of things. And so we're pretty narrowly focused on this, just what are you going to need to know as you build up applications? And so like one example is that like, we don't cover, we don't mention macros in the book at all. Um, and it, not that, uh, there aren't times when you'll want to use macro, but, um, in the end we decided that, um, it was not something that we had to cover in the book. Maybe a maybe a future topic for a second edition or something, um, and so uh, it's definitely not true of, of Joy of Closure. It's going to talk about macros and things like that. Um, so that's one example. And then you mentioned the cookbook, which I think is very much in the same vein uh, of of what we're doing in terms of uh, it's showing you uh, examples of how to do lots of different things. And uh, I think that's I think it's fantastic. And I think 
it's just uh, but it's uh, you're going to see little slices of things uh, whereas in uh, our, in our book it's going to be sort of more a longer narrative trajectory um, that covers you know of, of that same kind of thing sure I don't know if that makes sense or not. no it makes but, total sense I can imagine you know like the types of questions you ask at the end of a at the end of a conference speak is sort of a Q&A thing versus you know sitting down across a table with uh, with an expert and having a conversation with them those are both great things but they deliver different uh, different granularity of information if you will um, so Ben I wonder if you have any comment on that no it was uh, the cookbook in particular um, for a particular problem for like the one recipe they're looking at you're gonna get a little more a little more depth but uh, it's the organization is going to be a little different, whereas they're focusing on the deep um, vertical slice from the top of the problem to the bottom of this one specific problem. We're focusing on the flow from the beginning of the space to the end of the space. We don't necessarily go to the same level of depth, but there is a narrative that ties it all together. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just as an example, you see in a lot of uh, introductory texts, you might say, here's how you use filter or here's how you use Mapcat. Or these are the ways that you kind of uh, use a thread last operator or um, something like that. But you know, uh, we have a section that's sitting in front of me. That's reasons on my uh, reasons on my mind, where we take uh, a series of carts stored in a data store um, and their data structure, each having line items and prices using uh, you know currency, um, and then filter out and recombine all of these things to produce a revenue report by department. The kinds of things that people are going to ask for when you're building an application, uh, and that involves several steps, you know, and combining things in several ways. Yeah, makes sense totally. And I, sorry, I wasn't looking to. Uh, I mean, for, 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 I will say that's great. That's really helpful for me to understand in the context of those other books. I certainly think there's no sense of competition because, <laughs> I mean, how many closure books are there now? Like twelve. I, I've probably read like, I don't know, nine of them. And it, it wasn't like I read the first one and said, okay, now I'm done. I'm going to read the other eight for fun every time yeah. I got something. So that's uh -huh. very, very, very cool. Um, yeah, you know, so I, I guess I, I have – so I'm sitting here. So, Ben, I've known you for quite a while, like five years now. And uh, we had you on the podcast what must be coming more than two years ago now. And what's interesting to me is that, boy, was it three years? Anyway, it was a while ago. And when you were on the show, one of the things we talked about was that you were just sort of um, starting your closure journey. And here now you've written a book, and it's not an intro book, um, although it does take, I think, mastery of a topic to write a good intro book. But you've actually gone and written this you know, level two book. You know, What's your closure journey been like since last we spoke on the show? I mean, you must have obviously done some – some pretty heavy uh, lifting in order to be able to distill it into that level of, uh, of a work. It, it has been uh, thorough. <clears throat> um, uh, one of the things that I remember talking about the last time I was on the podcast, which I probably should have listened to you before. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, the way uh, – the lack of basically 201 level material, mm -hmm. like how steep the ramp was to get into – closure proper to, to gain a real level of proficiency to the level uh, where you can just intuitively move through the language. 
So when we talked about that, I started thinking about, well, there's no reason that couldn't exist. So here we are. You know, the 201 needed to be written and, uh, you know, instead of in bits and pieces of really good advice and blog posts and conference talks and things like this, let's just distill all of that down into uh, the thing that I wish I had been able to read immediately prior to our last podcast recording. <laughs> but, but I mean, you must have gone through a learning process between now and then because if my recollection serves me correctly, like I say, you were still cl- climbing the hill. And, and oh, yeah. I wonder what you feel like was most valuable to you, given that you didn't have your book available. What did you What did you do to kind of get you to where you are now? Well, for most of that time, I was working for Cognitech, mm-hmm. so uh, there were a number of clients that introduced me to new levels of uh, interesting learning and some pain. And you know, I've worked with uh, a lot of really good people along the way. Uh, in particular, I spent some time on a project with uh, Michael Nygaard. And he really expanded my brain about a number of uh, a number of aspects of closure that I hadn't really given uh, a lot of deep thought to. Uh, but we didn't talk about macros in the book, so <laughs> a lot of that was <laughs> macro related. No, it's just been project here, project there, working on you know uh, doing a little work on pedestal, doing uh, some open source work, and eventually. The thing that I found most difficult when I was getting started was being able to find the flow uh, to get into the way closure, if it were a thinking being, would think about itself. And a lot of that is is just practice, is effort, you know, and then understanding where the ideas come from. Once you can find the flow, you're you're in good shape. So it took me about you know two years, year and a half, two years to really get a decent handle on how that was supposed to feel. So you've moved on from Cognitech. You were presented with an opportunity that uh, sounded pretty great when you told me about it, um, even though I knew that we would miss you. Um, Is that something you can talk about? I'd be curious to hear if you can. Yeah. There's a company in Charlotte. They're tax management associates. It does not sound like an exciting uh, exciting thing. Primarily, they uh, provide... Um, software and technical services and inf- efficiency improvements to state and local government agencies. Uh, but what was appealing was the uh, the team there was looking for some leadership, some someone who had a little more experience in developing a larger scale software. Uh, so they were able to slide me into that role, and so far things are going swimmingly. Uh, it's a case. So many companies don't realize they're software companies, and you have to teach them that they're software companies so that they can start to act like a software company and put into practice uh, good tools and techniques to make the process of developing software better, higher quality, and uh, smoother. So are you using Clojure, or are, is your team, I suppose, since it sounds like you're um, maybe more helping the team run than necessarily doing the implementation yourself are you using closure i end up doing a fair amount of implementation still okay uh, i wouldn't have it any other way either i did worthwhile i sneak it in where i can right now we are primarily a ruby rails angular we're moving toward deployment uh, of as many things as we can to aws and that gives me the opportunity to redesign some of the systems and implement new pieces and most of those are uh, most of the new stuff's coming in enclosure, but you've got to work with a team that doesn't know it. So, introducing it slowly is uh, is the best way in this case. Yeah, well, so there are a number of things about that I find interesting. First of all, I think uh, 
it's fair to say that Ruby is definitely a, um, a sister language or you know a cousin language, however you want to put it, in the sense that I feel like there's significant overlap in kind of the values of the two community. Um, and, and then also, obviously, Ruby is a fairly uh, powerful language in the sense of what you can what you can do with it relative to other languages, which don't fall that far down the spectrum. But um, I guess the question I have for you then is, so obviously closures influence your thinking, right? You know, you're say you're able to slip closure the language in where you can, but I think uh, based on my own experience working in C sharp, certainly, it's totally possible to slip in principles without changing language at all. And I wonder whether that's something that you have either seen happen or explicitly set out to do with your team and your software. Uh, I've, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen, you know, first in, uh, you know, first in my own practice. And then the advice I end up giving the, uh, the developers that I work with usually leans in that direction. You know, if I take a step back, and I, I can say, oh, I'm, I'm accidentally teaching them closure in Ruby and then eventually in closure. That's, uh, I don't think that's something you could escape. I mean, it's not a question of if it's going to want to happen. It's a question of whether or not you feel like limiting the amount that you let that influence your uh, experience in other languages. Well, cool. That's awesome. It, it's going to be really, I think we have to check back in with you because it sounds like, you know, you're, you're starting to, um, starting to shift that boulder, if you will. And uh, it'd be really fun to talk to you again at some point in the future and see. <laughs> <laughs> if if you've managed to roll it aside or if it's fallen back and crushed you, if I can continue to torture that particular analogy. <laughs> but so I, this actually reminds me, because we had a chance to talk about Ben a little bit, that, you know, his work aside from the book, and I want to come back to the book, but but Alex, I've been meaning to have you on the show for quite a while to uh, touch on or really touch on again your role um, in the Closure Universe, because I think it's super interesting and it's something that is of interest to our listeners I think we've mentioned this before, but I think uh, maybe you haven't ever dwelt on it or haven't gotten an update from you recently. You're essentially the community management person. Am I describing your role correctly? Yeah, although I hate that term. Okay. Because I don't feel like I manage any of the community. Okay, fair point. So how would <laughs> the you community put it? is awesome. All yeah, I right. can do is I, uh, I, I like to sort of think of my role as being a, a two-way catalyst. So shuttling things that are happening in the community – too, too rich and and into the sort of thought process around, around where closure is going and then also sort of shuttling that information back out in effective ways to uh, give people to, to let people know what's happening and to find places where there are people who can be connected or you know where we can make things work better and I think something that maybe some people don't realize is that this is your job I mean you are spending a significant it's not like you know, if I say, oh, I'm working on something on Fridays where I, I might get to spend two or three hours, say, uh, doing pedestal on Fridays, and the rest of the time my job for Cognitech is to work for our, our consulting clients. This is your a, a significant portion of your full-time position, the thing that we pay you to do. Yeah, that's the bulk of what I do. And <laughs> I do a lot of it outside work hours, too, just because I, I enjoy it as well. But uh, there are certainly a lot of people at Cognitech that help out. Uh, on Fridays doing screening or working on different, you know, obviously lots of the closure libraries like, uh, you know, are maintained by people at Cognitech. So there are a number of people that work on in various capacities on closure, right? Uh, Rich and Stu, obviously, uh, double time or triple time <laughs> working on closure and Datomic and, and uh, you know, running the company and 
doing various other things. So uh, I fortunately have a little bit more headspace to uh, uh, maintain sort of a scope for what's going on and continuity across those things. Well, take us through that in a little bit more detail. I mean, uh, give people a sense of, you know, on a typical day, types of activities are you doing? What's involved in being that two-way catalyst in terms of like tasks you have to accomplish? So uh, the, these days, uh, my, we actually have split my time into two different kinds of days. And so right now I'm spending uh, approximately two days a week working on uh, sort of public community stuff mostly in JIRA, in our bug tracker. And so the things that we have a, a workflow there for uh, how tickets flow from when they're logged into being triaged, which means that uh, basically that I consider it to be something that we should work on. Then at some point it goes through vetting, which is where Rich agrees or disagrees with me and targets it into a release. And then there's a uh, sort of a process around where both me or someone else uh, like Michael Focus has uh, been great about screening very consistently on Fridays. And I know he's uh, today's a Friday. He's off screening tickets today. And uh, so there are uh, a, a number of people who screen tickets and, and uh, basically it goes through uh, every change basically goes through two people will look at it to see that it's a good problem. Some screener and rich. And then every ticket will go through a check to see that it's a good solution. And that's some screener and rich. And so we've got two two touch points on every on every ticket, and it is somewhat a cumbersome process in that there is obviously some overhead to that. But our goal is uh, really more quality than quantity, and so it's a matter of how you manage that, and and uh, something that we're continuously fine tuning, trying to make it better, and trying to figure out ways that we can um, fast track or streamline different things that uh, are not as uh, critical as for, you know, if it's a typo or something like that, how can we streamline the process, things like that. So that's what I do a couple days a week is kind of focus on those things. I also sort of watch closure, public closure channels, the Twitter, the IRC room, the mailing list, the Slack channels are pretty active these days. And so I kind of watch all those and try to do what I can out there to provide information, point people at resources, take information and and uh, collect that as well. And then uh, kind of the other days of the week, I'm really more working on internal priorities. And those that sometimes is working on infrastructure, things like, you know, websites and our build system and things like that. Sometimes it's working on uh, feature related work for the release. So it's things that aren't necessarily uh, in a JIRA ticket, but it's a, you know, like transducers is a good example from the last release or reader conditionals. Those are two of the major features in the closure 1.7 release. Uh, both of those are the kind of things where I would work on it in, turn of, in terms of our sort of internal priorities. And so that those are kind of the two, two kinds of things that I do. And then I, I actually, <laughs> so that's the closure stuff. Then I kind of wedge in on the side of that, uh, trying to help uh, Lynn Grogan work on our three different events that we put on, the ClojureCon, Jira Closure, and uh, Closure West. And then uh, I also do training classes. Every, at this point, every two, three months, usually I do a training class for Clojure. Uh, usually at some company that is paying us to do that. And you have a hobby, which is running uh, this little thing that, you know, I don't know, 1,200 people go to called Strange Loop 2. Yes, yes. That's the other, uh, <laughs> yes, I do that in my free time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what you should infer, Craig, from all of that is that uh, Alex's next book will be about time travel. 
yeah. <laughs> or at least time management. <laughs> One of the two. Yeah, Maybe. Time, time travel implies that I would go do it at some other time. And I'd, you know, that would be the, then I'd still have to do it. So <laughs> I see what you're saying. That'd be about coercing other people to do my work for me. There you go. Strong arm <laughs> tactics 101 or oh, 201, yeah. right? Of course. We don't want a 201 children. book. Well, there you go. You're already a master. Yes, in fact, we spent quite a bit of time talking about your son recently on the podcast when we talked about dyslexia. Cool. Uh, so th actually, that reminds me. So you mentioned 1-7. Obviously, that's a, been a pretty big focus of the closure part of your work for the last little while. And so now one can easily assume by watching the public activity that um, you are now hard at work on 1-8. I wonder if you had anything you wanted to say about 1-8. I, I don't have any uh, big things to say other than things we've already said publicly. Um, we're, we're shooting for a feature freeze, which for us, we do betas on our regular sort of time frame as we're sort of working on the release. And those are all considered work in progress and we break stuff occasionally. And that's, you know, we appreciate feedback when people can try it and it gives us a lot of, uh, it's really helpful. And then at some point we decide that we are not going to put any more features in the release. There's not going to be any new enhancements. And we usually call that beta one. Uh, we usually... Uh, try to then expeditiously move through um, burning down whatever the remaining uh, ticket list is and to the point where we can have a release candidate. And usually uh, we end up having a couple of release candidates before we get one that we believe is baked well enough to release. Um, so our current goal is to get to beta one, the feature freeze by the beginning of October, and then to get through the beta and release candidate uh, process to a release around the time of closure conch, which is mid November. So that's the path work right now. We're, we're really focusing on, on uh, sort of bug fixing and uh, cleaning up some of the backlog in Jira right now. The only uh, we, we have had uh, rich has done a number of things in the, the alphas already, but uh, the one thing that we have slotted is the socket REPL work. Uh, and this is really designed to help tool uh, implementers. So it's really, uh, a re we actually built an implementation of this during the 1.7 timeframe. And the idea there was how can we uh, take our existing, the existing REPL process, and instead of making that a standalone thing, make it into a REPL that served over a socket server. Uh, and so we implemented that. But as we did that, and as we started looking at that sort of thing, um, Rich, in classic Rich fashion, said, we shouldn't be doing this. What we should be doing is building a socket server and then composing it with a REPL. Mm. Uh, and we should not be putting these, conflating these two things. We should be taking them apart in ways that we can combine them. And the benefit there is that uh, you can make the REPL itself better and that you can also make a generic socket server that you could do other things over uh, in addition to the REPL. Uh, and the uh, sort of one of the thorny problems is how do you um, you want your tooling to basically be able to open up a socket REPL to your application, and you also want the tooling to open up sort of a tooling REPL where it can uh, and have those things sort of share a larger session context, so that for example the tooling connection can look at the current namespace for the um, for the client's uh, REPL. Uh, that sort of thing. So that's what we're kind of wrestling through is what's the best way to do that sort of thing uh, right now. And the idea is that you will be able to deploy one of these uh, just by adding like system properties to your application. 
And so you add some system properties that says open a open a REPL open a server that will serve REPLs to you at this port, and all of a sudden your existing closure application can be connected to from an external tool. Yeah, we have a I mean we have sort of sort of ways of doing that now, right? But I think I think I think you said what I suspect is the key point, which is how to do that in a way that lets you make those pieces better independently. Yeah, and the key there is no code changes. So you don't have mm. to a priori bake in the ability to connect to your server with a REPL. Right. And you could do that now. It's easy to do, right? Um, there are lots of ways to do that now. Uh, but the idea is to make that something that's actually built into the closure runtime um, and available to you already. So, Well, that'll be great. Um, and so that's that's a candidate for a 1.8 release. Are there other um, things? I mean, there's always a handful of bug fixes that go in, but uh, are there other features for those of us that haven't been following along on the uh, development list in Jira? That's the big one that we've committed to right now. And I expect there's not going to be, you know, a ton of other things. Um, Rich has um, did some early work on sort of tuples, basically optimizing small collections. Um, That work has actually been pulled back out based on some of the things that he found, we found during uh, performance testing it. Uh, So right now there's not really any change from that in the current alphas. Uh, and then the other big thing that he's done some work on is direct linking. Uh, and this is something that we have worked on uh, a couple times over the last year and a half or so, two years. Uh, the idea with direct linking is that right now when you have a function, when you invoke a function through a var in Clojure, uh, it does that by looking up the var and then figuring out what the var function is and then invoking the function. And so it's really a two-step process of finding the var and then invoking the function. And there's some cost to that. There's some cost to that var uh, lookup part of it. And so what direct linking does is allows you to compile your your var into something that can be statically invoked. And so from a JVM perspective, you can uh, call it directly. Um, and so at the call site, you can then choose, I want to directly call into this thing and I'm not, you're basically taking away the ability to redefine a var at that point. Uh, so it is removing dynamism from the closure platform in service of performance. Uh, and that's something that you don't want to do with the REPL usually. Usually you want the flexibility to do lots of different things like that at the REPL. But when you deploy in production, uh, you know much more precisely exactly what kinds of things you're going to do with the with uh, with the closure runtime in particular. And you're probably not going to, you know, swap out a new version of Conj or something like that, right? There's all sorts of uh, places where you could theoretically swap things out, and it's useful to do that sometimes in test or development at the REPL, but you don't want to do that at production. And so that's it's a matter of uh, opening up that uh, possibility. Uh, and one of the key things here is that the way direct linking works now is that it does not take away the var invocation path, it just adds an additional static invocation path uh, that can be directly linked. And it's really up to the caller at the call site location to decide whether or not they want to, which of those paths they want to use. Uh, right now, closure as of 1.8 alpha 4, clo- the closure runtime itself is actually being compiled with this direct linking on. And both of those paths are inside the compiled version of closure. So uh, it's uh, somewhat of an experiment. And I think the tricky thing is um, whether or not this actually makes your closure programs faster. It does in certain, if you're, for example, deploying to Android or 
certain uh, runtimes like that. I think there's definitely a possibility that it will. What I have found in some testing is that direct is that var invocation and lookup is not the bottleneck in most applications. So it doesn't matter if you know if you, say you make it 50% faster. If your program is not bound by that in the first place, then it doesn't actually uh, you know make your overall program much faster. So that's something that still needs a lot more evaluation, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, it's it's funny that you you funny. It's interesting that you make the uh, the distinction between sort of REPL time and um, when your application runs. I mean, we definitely see this all the time to the extent where I frequently have like a dev profile if I'm using Line again or a you know similar equivalent in other tools where it's like, well, here's how I run when I'm you know noodling around at the REPL and building the thing. And a lot of that goes away when I actually, you know, execute my application in um, in production mode. It's it's amusing to me because yeah, at the REPL we all we do all sorts of stuff like you know redefine vars all the time, and it's and it's funny because you know when you teach people who are new to Clojure, one of the first things that we often tout is oh yeah, it's a functional language like we really minimize side effects, and then one of the very first things we show them is how to create vars, which are <laughs> right essentially that's create them as a side effect, and then we we bash on them, and the other one is Printlin, <laughs> yeah. which is like okay, that's not too functional, but hey, look yeah. the other way. So no, that's really cool stuff. I mean. Uh, so it's obviously a performance game, and that those are always tricky as think, especially for you know people like the closure team that are working on software that kind of doesn't in and of itself run anything. You know what I mean? It's not it's not a program; it's a language, and so you you but you have to be thinking about the types of you're really trying to optimize the programs that are going to run, not not closure per se itself, right? There's other things that fall in this category too, and uh, like for example. When you have doc strings in your program, you want to be able to use those at the REPL. You want to be able to say doc whatever and do things like that. Uh, when you do that, though, that requires that the class um, that's being generated under the hood has mm. a string in its constant pool that is the doc string. And so uh, you can save sort of compiled space and load time time by getting rid of the doc strings or other kind other parts of your metadata your var metadata you don't need those at production time right and so there is actually a flag now called a lead meta that lets you you know you know get rid of some or some parts of the metadata uh, and it's not on by default and i think most people aren't even aware it exists but <laughs> we've experimented with things like that as well uh, and sort of having two different producing two different builds of closure one that would be like a production classifier version and one that would be like your dev time version and i've actually have some prototype alterations to the build system that would produce both uh, and things like that but it, it it definitely increases complexity in understanding the closure runtime and and deploying it um, because you start to it's not that bad when you just have closure, but once you open up these tools to libraries and libraries that depend on libraries and applications that depend on libraries that depend on libraries, the complexity level can uh, explode at that point. Mm. Uh, so it's just, it's not obvious what the right set of answers is for all that stuff yet. <laughs> so, Well, I know that you were uh, earlier being very modest and I think characteristically so in saying that, you know, all these other people are smarter than you, but I, for one, am very glad that you are one of the people involved in helping make these decisions because I've watched you in action and you're very, very good at it. So that's, that's good news for the rest of us. 
So that's really cool stuff. I love hearing about the work that you're doing, Alex, but I want to I loop back to the book because I think we're starting to get near the end of our time. And I think there's a couple more things we'd like to, uh, to talk about. Um, so I think we talked about the fact that it's nearly out of your hands. I don't know if we ever mentioned a publication date per se, but it's worth mentioning again if, if I just have forgotten it. When, when, when will this book of yours be in the hands of people who want to read it? Probably the end of uh, end of August, beginning of September. Okay, cool. It, it is available now as a beta book. So oh, okay. You, and it's content complete effectively right now, so you can get it now. And I think when basically when it comes out, you get the ebook at that point. Sometimes I forget I'm living in the 21st century. <laughs> it's been out for months. <laughs> awesome. Well, people should, well, then what's my excuse for not having read it yet? That's what I. That's what I think you should be asking me. Um, I didn't want to be rude. Well, you, that's because you're a really nice guy on top of being smart. The answer is because you're busy, just like all of us. Yeah, well, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> I understand that. No, no, I got I to gotta say. And so I'm glad that your book is sort of in the 201 level because that, that probably moves it up on my list a little bit. I, I've, I have yet to read a closure book that I don't like, but I got to say I'm not – it just is not a priority for me right now to read another intro book unless it was to like you know give feedback to somebody if I were – doing that you know it's it's just not where i'm at right now even though i even though everything i've heard about basically every closure book is that you know they're all worth reading and and it's, it's a, a portion of the community counts all of them as as one of their favorites but uh, i think it's a i think it's a great thing that you guys have slotted your book into that sort of middle space um that is uh, in need of some more attention so it's super cool um i think one thing we didn't ask you about and i think might actually be a good way to start to wind down um is I don't know if we ever got you to kind of outline the book for us. I mean, you mentioned a couple of the chapters, but I, there's. Uh, you said you found an arc, but I don't think we ever explicitly said when you pick up the book, part one is this, part two is this. I mean, I think you sort of vaguely mentioned it, but um, that'd be great to hear that, just the, the, the table of contents, if you will. Sure. Uh, the book is in three parts. The first two parts deal with composing uh, an application, creating an application from scratch. Uh, and the third part is incidental concerns that you may or may not find, find useful. Probably, but you know, it's it's a question. So the first two parts form the the narrative. the uh, The first chapter is on uh, entity entities, modeling entities, uh, relationships between entities, entity functions. The second part is about uh, collections. When to use which collection? Which when's going to give you the most bang for your buck? How to make good decisions around using and choosing collections and then if you need to building custom collections uh chapter three is uh sequential uh processing so think like mapping and reducing and filtering and combining these things into query like transformational processes and uh i think we talk about uh transducers in there as well as just a part of the regular uh moving through the various parts uh, that's part one. Part two is focused sort of at the application level. So if uh, part one is focused at the little pieces that may make an application, part two is the application itself. So uh, chapter four is on uh, state and state change and uh, atoms, vars, refs, you know, watch functions and validators and the other things that go into managing state enclosure. And the the chapter begins with trying to change the way people think about or at least exposing the way that that closure thinks about state whereas you know identity and state are two different uh 
elements, and you know, Rich has talked about this in the past. So the next chapter five is on uh, the words slipping out of my mind. Uh, it's called use your cores. Yes, it's really about concurrency. Uh, sure, concurrency was the word that I could not retrieve for the life of me. <laughs> a concurrency and a little bit more uh, parallelism with uh, with reducers. So I just want to observe that the thing you were having trouble with was remembering something and talking at the same time. Yes, I just I just want to point that out. There's a that's a concurrency joke. No, all right. Yeah, please continue. <laughs> Yeah, so sorry about that. Uh, that is, uh, you know, cues and core async and agents and building processes that can handle work outside of your main execution stream. The next chapter is on basically building components, how to put things into namespaces and, to, you know, to organize the application that you're trying to build, uh, how to think about pieces of the application as complete disconnected systems. Sorry, I interrupt. Because I, that, do you guys talk about Stuart's uh, Stuart Sierra's um, component library there? I know yes. not everybody we does things. We actually don't in that chapter, but we do in the next one. Gotcha. So, okay. Uh, we try to treat it as an independent thing at, at that level, and then when we get to the next chapter, we do talk about okay. it. Okay. Cool. I wanted to mention uh, just uh, I'll briefly have an aside and say that we do talk about a number of libraries in the, in the in the book so it's not just about it's not just about the language and using the language as much as it is like what are the best tools to do these kinds of different things and so so we talk about component and we talk about uh, using a prismatic schema for data validation and using um, environ or emuconf to do configuration or medley for a few different uh, uh, utilities and things like that so that's great. I actually, I'm, I'm psyched. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you actually do split, uh, talk about the concept and then as well, the libraries. Cause I think I just had that conversation with customers so many times, like, well, here's why you want to do something. Here's a library that a lot of people use or a couple libraries that a lot of people use. Okay. Sorry. That's not, that's really cool. Go ahead. Ben, please continue. Uh, as, as Alex mentioned, the next chapter is the composition of an application given all, all of the other parts or maybe starting from the composition end where you're like sketching out your application. This is what an application using components uh, looks like and how things things fall together. And we do talk about Stuart's um, uh, component library in there. And that's our narrative arc. The other things that we talk about uh, briefly in part three, or I won't say briefly, we're not talking about them briefly, but I'm going to try to talk about them briefly, <laughs> is various practices. So there's a, there's a bit on uh, testing, there's a bit on serialization and data exchange, there's a bit on deployment, and then we've got a couple of uh, appendices around uh, how to think in a closure-ish way and the technologies, papers, and uh, et cetera, that uh, closure is built on. Very cool. Oh, I, I, I got to tell you, just having heard, you know, we talked about the book, but then actually having heard the list of things you talk about, I, I really think I'm gonna have to go read this book. I mean, I, you know, I've been lucky. I've been doing closure every day for quite a while, and uh, but still, I think there's stuff in there that I like. I've never used um, Environ or or Medley, and the, I mean that those are libraries. Yeah, I'm not talking just about that stuff that you can go look in the. The website, but it, the the philosophy stuff too sounds like it would be worth reading. Or I can, or I'm lucky, I can call you guys up. But I think I'll read the book. <laughs> um, all right, well, very cool. So I think we're kind of winding down here in terms of time. So, um, uh, but before we do uh, wrap up, I want to make sure I give you guys a chance to talk about anything else that uh, you think needs to be said today. And uh, if you can't think of anything, that's fine. And um, if you think of something, you're like, well, 
that's a big topic, then I would be thrilled to have you all back on yet again. Um, you know, you're both veterans of the podcast now. Uh, but like I said, we do want to, uh, we do have, and we're happy to take any time for anything you think we should talk about today. Well, there, there is one thing sure. uh, at the beginning of the show. Uh, the tradition of the show is to bring up an aspect of art mm-hmm. or how art has influenced us, and I got to that answer, answer that question, and Alex did not. Oh, well, yeah, I was going to give him the end one, but um, you know, I, I'm more than happy to let you each have a crack at both of the, both of the things. So should we – Alex, you want to turn on both, or you want to you just take the advice piece? It's up to you. Well, I, was, I was thankfully that Ben uh, stuck his hand up at the beginning because I hadn't thought about it. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't have anything queued up. I would we'll, say, but really, the the most uh, meaningful art thing that I that's happened to me lately is that my kids are all into School of Rock and and have been uh, learning to play music, and so uh, getting to play music with them and and seeing them play music has been uh, really an amazing thing as a parent. And so I, they actually all have a gig tonight, so I'm looking forward to going and seeing them all rock out tonight. But go ahead. <laughs> no, no. I was going to say you've actually posted some videos and pictures of your kids like playing ACDC and stuff like that, and it just looks really, really cool. I'm actually, you know, my kids um, both play the piano. I, I'm looking forward to the day when uh, their practice schedule and proclivities and whatever allow them to start learning rock songs because it's definitely more classically focused right now. And I'm more of a rock guy, so it'll be that'll be fun when we get there. But uh, it's very cool stuff that you've been posting. Well, um, so we do have the. Uh, so, oh, sorry. That was that the. Uh, was that was there anything else, or was that the one thing you wanted to add, Ben? No, that was that was the one thing I wanted to add. All right, very cool. Then we will then we will go to the other bookend of the show, which is at the end here. We like to ask, in this case, one of our guests. Although you're welcome to pitch in too, Ben, but I'll, I'll throw it to Alex first, and you can pass when it's your turn if you like, Ben. Which is a piece of advice that that either you've received or been given. Oh, sorry, I guess that's the same thing, received or given, about anything at all, software, life, baking cookies, I don't care. What would you like to share advice with us about, Alex? Oh, one thing that I that I uh, keep coming back to and over, over and over again, uh, especially in the last, uh, as, I, uh, as my age ascends, uh, is that the things that I find that give me true uh, uh, contentment or joy are really the things that were the hardest to do and mm-hmm. it's this notion of this uh the notion that the things that are uh worth doing are the things that are hard and so uh you know in some cases that's learning an instrument or uh finishing a book or <laughs> or learning a programming language really deeply or whatever it is and and so that makes me want to uh not shy away from things that are hard but uh run towards those things and and uh, try to appreciate the the beginning part where you feel like an idiot. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not too not too long ago, just for fun, I went back and took some guitar lessons, and and uh, I have always I I learned to play guitar primarily using tab tablature and ear and stuff like that. Uh, and I have a I play many other instruments, and I have a lot of experience reading music, <laughs> you know, with staffs and stuff. And but I just had never done it in guitar and. Uh, and so my guitar teacher asked me to play guitar music using sheet music, and and uh, I had never tried to do that before. And I know all of the skills involved. You know, <laughs> I know mm-hmm. I know how to read music. I know understand the clef. I know where the what the strings are on the guitar. I know where the notes are. All that, but putting all that stuff together at the same time it made me feel like a total idiot. And uh, I just started laughing because it was just it was so ridiculous to me that. 
I knew all the things involved and yet it was still so hard. And it was a very, uh, it was very, uh, for me, it was good for me to feel like an idiot again and, and see. So uh, you can get back to the point where I, I know what my kids are feeling when they try to learn stuff and, uh, or when people are, you know, I'm trying to teach people closure or something like that. It's the first time I've ever done it. So that is fantastic. I, uh, I can definitely relate. Um, except for the part where it sounds like you dealt with feeling like an idiot very well. Like I have to say, I don't always do that so great, but I will, I will remember your <laughs> advice. It's excellent advice and I will attempt to apply it to my life more. Well, this has been great. So glad that you both could make it. I really am looking forward to reading your book. Uh, it just, you know, I didn't really know anything about it other than that you two had written it, which was um, by itself enough to interest me in it. But uh, now having heard about, you know, what what your take on it is and, and the material, um, I'm, I'm actually pretty psyched to um, try to make some time and, and go read it. Um, so that book, of course, is Closure Applied from Practice to Practitioner. And we've been talking with uh, Ben Van Grift and Alex Miller about that as their book. As they said, you can get it now off the uh, Prague Prague uh, Pragmatic Bookshelf website and it will be available in um, paper form. Sounds like not too long from when this podcast goes. It actually depends on when we get this out. It be certainly within a you know small number of weeks of that. So uh, thanks again a ton to both of you, to Alex and to Ben for coming on the show. Always fun to talk to you whether it's on the air. I guess there's not really air on the microphone or not, but uh, super glad you could make it. So thanks a ton for coming on. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. We will do it again. All right, so we will call it there. This has been the Cognicast. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guests today were Alex Miller on Twitter at PureDanger, P-U-R-E-D-A-N-G-E-R, and Ben Van Griff on Twitter at B Van Grift, B-V-A-N-D-G-R-I-F-T. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you.